Well, good morning, Woodlawn Baptist Church. Y'all doing all right this morning? It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Um, thank you, Pastor Laramie and the, the choir praise team for leading us um, to God's throne in worship, for reminding us of the gospel, what rich truth that we were able to sing this morning. Uh, I bring you greetings from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and in particular, our president, Dr. Jamie Dew. Um, and I also regret to inform you that my wife's not able to be with me this morning. If you knew uh, Jessica and I both, you would know she's the better half, and I hate that she's not able to worship with us this morning. Uh, she's out of town this weekend, but uh, she would love to have been here with us as well. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 37. Psalm chapter 37. Can't begin to tell you this morning how thankful I am to be with you uh, the opportunity to stand before you and open God's Word and preach this morning. It's not a, a task that I take lightly, as I know uh, your pastor, Pastor Lewis, does not, and it's an honor that he would ask me to stand in and preach in his absence. But this morning, I, I want to share with you at least three reasons why I am thankful to be here. Even my thank you has points. I didn't alliterate it for you. I'm sorry about that. But uh, one, your pastor has been a really good friend to me. Um, He's on vacation this morning, and so he's not here. He can't stop me from sharing this story and telling on him this morning, or even make faces at me as I tell this story on him this morning. Uh, but eight years ago, we moved, my wife and I, to North Carolina to do more school, as Pastor Laramie said. And because this is home, we would often come home for big uh, holidays and events and sort of those sorts of things. And on one of those trips home, Pastor Lewis texted me and asked, hey, are you going to be in town for, I don't remember if it was Christmas or Thanksgiving, and I was, and so I told him that I was, and he asked, hey, can you come to coffee? I'd love to buy you coffee and just catch up and chat a little bit. And so I was, I was honored to get to do that, and we sat and visited for a while, and, and it, was, it was good to reminisce and catch up with him. But as I was leaving, he says, hey, wait. And as I turned back to the table where we were having coffee, he had slid a a gift card, a Walmart gift card across the table. And he says, this is just a little gift from my family to yours. I know that seminary can be tough. Go and buy yourself some groceries. That's the kind of pastor you have, Woodlawn Baptist Church. And I know that if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that to be the case because he's cared for you and he shepherded your soul well. But I just want to remind you this morning, even in his absence, pray for him. The task that's before him is a heavy task. It's a joy-filled task, but it's one that's often weighty. And so pray for your pastor and lift him up. I'm also thrilled to be here this morning with you because as one of the um, associate vice presidents from one of your seminaries, I have the privilege and opportunity to travel and do this sort of thing a good bit. And it's an honor and it's a joy for me as I stand in churches like this across our convention week in and week out, small ones, large ones, traditional ones, contemporary ones, all different shapes, sizes, and flavors. And here's the thing this morning, that if I were only to have one vantage point to see our convention of churches, and that being the one that's our computer screen or phone, if Twitter were the only way that I could gather intel about our convention, I'd be a little bit worried. But week in and week out, I get to stand before churches like yours. And here's what I've, I've found and I've noticed as I've been able to travel and preach a, a little bit in this role that I'm in, is that Southern Baptists on the whole are faithful, Bible-believing Folks that love Jesus, have a heart on fire for Jesus, and just want to let the neighborhoods and the nations know that Jesus is king as they share the gospel with folks. And that's what I've, I see here at Woodlawn Baptist Church among you, and so I'm grateful to, to see that this morning. Third reason, I'm really happy to be with you this morning, and this one, this lands heavy on me every time I get to do this, 
is that the, the reality is we may never, the people, the souls that are assembled in this room this morning, the collective whole of us may never again get together in this way on a Sunday morning in the house of God and worship Christ while we're on this planet. That's kind of sad because I kind of like all of you. And, and singing with you just a few moments ago was a wonderful thing for my soul to experience. And we may never get, this group may never get to do that ever again on this planet. But here's the reality. There's coming a day. There's coming a day when we will stand before our King at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And on that day, we will, we will get to worship together again. When we're gathered around His throne for all eternity, lifting high King Jesus, the same one we just sung about. And what a day that's going to be. And so in some sense, today is a warm-up. It's kind of like a rehearsal that I get to be with you, Woodlawn Baptist Church, and get to experience a little bit of what that's going to be like when we're gathered for all eternity as one family before our King, His bride, worshiping Him for eternity. So I'm grateful to be with you this morning. I trust that you're in Psalm 37, and uh, I, have a, I have a job to do. Your pastor assigned me Psalm chapter 37, and so I need to get to work. Here's the thing, though. I'm, I'm understanding that you guys do this thing in the summer where it's like the summer and the Psalms, and you preach through different Psalms. And I think, uh, Pastor Larry, I'm the first of those, right, for this summer. And so here's the thing. I can screw this thing up, and you wouldn't know because I'm the first one. I don't have anybody to follow. No one set the tone yet. So uh, I, I'm tickled to death to have Psalm chapter 37. So if you're there with me uh, this morning, we're going to walk through this psalm together. And, uh, and so let's read the text. We're going to read the entire chapter, all of chapter 37, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord this morning, church. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their swords shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked." For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, and those cursed by him shall be cut off. 
The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice and will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on, on, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be cut, shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. Father God, we come before you this morning needing your help. God, as we've read your word now, we seek to understand it. And God, so use my feeble words as I attempt to explain your precious word, your never-changing, inerrant word. God, would the sermon that falls upon the ears of hearers in this room be better than the sermon that I prepared because it's your Holy Spirit that's preaching to us this morning the eternal truths of God. Father, would you bless the preaching of your word to build up and edify your saints here at Woodlawn Baptist Church. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. When Pastor Lewis assigned this text to me, I immediately thought of verse 4. Uh, Perhaps you know it as well. Maybe you've memorized it. It's probably the most well-known verse in this chapter. It's used by prosperity gospel preachers to assure listeners that God will give them whatever they want or desire, whether that's wealth or riches or material prosperity. The verse has often uh, been given a fair treatment, though, by Bible preachers, preachers that love the gospel and preach the truth of God. And and that's that's a help to us to reorient our delight, our joy, such that it's fixed on Christ, that He, not stuff, should be our chief prize, our pursuit in life, that He, Christ, should be our delight. And so naturally, as I began meditating on this passage and praying through this passage, my mind kept going back to that verse. Because it's the verse that I know from the passage. And we'll get to that verse in a moment. But I want to begin by showing you that that verse 4 is really a supporting verse for a larger theme that David is emphasizing here as he's he's laying out for us uh, some, some of an argument in chapter 37. He's preaching to himself and preaching to us as we're recipients of God's Word. It's a larger theme, and that theme is found in the first verse. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, 
be not envious of wrongdoers. And you say, well, Matt, how do you know that's the overarching theme? Well, that's a good question. Evil or evildoers comes up seven times in this chapter. There are three times that justice is used. You contrast that with the ten times that David uses the word righteous to describe the actions of the saints, or righteous to describe the action that God takes on behalf of his people. And a clear picture emerges for us. David is writing Psalm chapter 37 as fuel for doing what he commands of himself in verse 1. To say it a different way, verses 20 through 40 are ammunition for the imperative, for the command, for what we're being told to do in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Well, how in the world do I do that? Well, we have 39 verses that are going to explain to us and help us avoid fretting, help us avoid envy when it comes to wrongdoers. Now, a couple caveats here before we even jump into the text. Number one, there is no way that we could mine the depths of this psalm in the time that we have left this morning. As with all of the psalms, there's much here, and, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of like your pastor in that I love to walk through chapters of Scripture verse by verse and explain the text thoroughly. And if we were preaching a narrative text this morning or an epistle this morning, that's what we would do. This is going to be different because we don't have enough time to deal with the content in this chapter. Instead, we're going to pull out some major themes that David pins for us that help us to fight for joy and against fear and against envy when it, can, when it comes to wrongdoers, evildoers. So that's caveat number one, namely that you're going to have more to chew on from this chapter than what I'm able to unpack for you this morning. Here's caveat number two. You need this. You need this. If I mentioned to you this morning that there's this warning in the text for us not to be envious of evildoers, some of you would probably check out and kind of turn off for a second because our knee-jerk reaction is to think, well, I would never be envious of evil people, all right? Like, that makes sense. That's, that's common sense. Why would I be envious of evil or evil people or the things that they're doing? But you need to hear me this morning. Satan is sneakier than that. Satan is more cunning than that, and this temptation is subtle but real for each and every one of us. It'd be so easy, right, if our enemy presented in a way that was really obvious, right? If, 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 if our enemy, the evil one in this case, or the evildoer in this case said, hey, I'm a wrongdoer, that's how I've gotten to here in life, come and be like me and you shall also have this, I would say, well, that's clearly Satan, that's clearly the evil one tempting me to be envious of the evildoer, but it doesn't work like that. It's not that easy. Let me give you some real life hypothetical examples that maybe would catch some of us in the room this morning to just see if this temptation might land on us. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a young lady, a teenage young lady perhaps even this morning. And you see lots of other young ladies dressing immodestly, parading themselves on social media, showing off a lot of skin, and the dudes are interested in her. And so you think for just a moment, they're popular, maybe I should be like them if only my parents weren't so strict. What's going on in your heart in that moment is that you are, verse one, being envious of wrongdoers. 
Adults, it's a temptation for you too. Maybe uh, you're an adult in this room this morning and you have a coworker who has gotten ahead and, and, and they've done that in some deceitful ways. Maybe a coworker that has played or skewed the numbers a bit in his favor or played office politics and as a result has climbed the ladder of success much quicker in, in his job than you have. And maybe for a moment, you'd never say it out loud, but maybe for a moment you've thought, even in your heart of hearts, those secret places that no one else knows, maybe if I start playing the game, maybe I could get there too. Verse 1, you're being envious of wrongdoers. Retired folks, you thought you were going to get off because you didn't have a job or a, a ladder in the company to climb, but perhaps you have a friend who's not a believer, also retired, never goes to church, has lived entirely for himself, and yet it seems he's doing much better than you. His 401k is bigger. His kids and grandkids seems, they seem to be better off, or at least they come visit more. And maybe for a moment you're wondering, has following God all of my life to this point really been worth it? Verse 1, you're being envious of wrongdoers. Married men, maybe you're married and you're wondering whether staying in this hard marriage is worth it. Is it worth a fight? Is it worth fighting for my wife and my marriage? A college roommate maybe just divorced his wife without biblical grounds and married a much younger, beautiful woman, and he seems to be happy. Verse 1, you're being envious of wrongdoers, single women. Maybe you deeply desire marriage, and a, a friend or coworker has snagged the perfect guy by sleeping around or, or whatever the, catch may, the, the, the case may be. She's caught this guy, and she tells you you need to get out there and play the field more and maybe for a moment you're wondering if you could compromise even just once. Verse 1, you're being envious of wrongdoers. And I don't mean to just throw a bunch of stereotypes or things out this morning, but you get the idea. The issue is that this is a battle that takes place at the level of your heart and your mind. In each of these hypotheticals that I just gave you, no one has acted upon any of those thoughts yet, and yet each of them are already guilty of being envious of the wicked. This is a real issue. While those examples are hypothetical, the issue itself is not hypothetical or theoretical. It is real. Lives are on the line. Marriages are on the line. Your holiness is on the line. The temptation is real. Psalm 37 is important, and you need it this morning. So how do we put to death envy toward evildoers? The question that I just asked has an answer in Psalm 37. David shows us how to avoid being envious of wrongdoers. And in all of this, he's instructing us to look to the future. Let me show you this. This is a theme that's repeated for us five times in the Psalm. Verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 34. You see this repeated phrase. Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. It's a thing that comes up five times. Here's the problem, though. I just told you that we avoid envy of evildoers by looking to the future. But Psalm 37 is talking about inheriting the land. Specifically, Moses leading the Israelites into a promised land, a land that God would give his people as an inheritance. So, how does an Old Testament history lesson about land allotment Help 21st century Christians avoid ungodly envy. Watch this. This is really good. 
when David writes this psalm, he's not thinking about acquiring the physical land of Canaan. You say, well, Matt, how in the world do you know what's in David's head? How in the world would you know that that's what he's not thinking about? He's not thinking about Israel acquiring the promised land because he's already sitting in the promised land. You see, Joshua led the Israelites into the land some 400 years before David wrote this psalm. And so, no, David's not thinking about an earthly inheritance of land. He's thinking about a far better land that was coming, an inheritance that is eternal in heaven. That, precisely that, is how we fight for joy and against envy that we would see wrongdoers and want what they have. We fight from a place of victory knowing that Christ awaits us in glory. Remember the statement that's repeated five times through the psalm? Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, brother and sister, this morning, hear me. Listen to me, Woodlawn. That is what awaits you if you are born again. Christ himself is your reward. The king of all the universe is your reward, your inheritance that awaits you. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 37, five strategies or principles from the text that would keep us from the, the temptation of, of envying the wicked or wrongdoer. Each time, here's, here's what I'm doing just to let you kind of behind the curtain for you as I was preparing this, this sermon and this text. The outline is, is in your worship guide. Here's those five main points. I'm pulling each of them from the, the text when the text says, those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the land. So each time that's repeated, I'm seeing a theme in the text, and that's your outline, all right? So straight from the text, let's look at them together this morning. Number one, look to the Lord. Look to the Lord. Verses three through nine, David tells us to look to God. There are uh, seven verses there, and in those seven verses, over a dozen commands that center our hearts on God. And you could preach a sermon with each one of these commands and in the, 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 the truth that we see contained in them. We don't have that much time, so let me show you this theme of looking to the Lord as fuel for fighting envy toward the evildoer. We see it unpacked for us in the following verses, um, starting verse 3. We look to the Lord by trusting Him. It says this in verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. This trust, this faith is believing the promises of God are true and that he'll keep his word. Like if you think about the root of this problem that we're facing here in Psalm 37, the, the, the root of this thing, this temptation that each of us have at some time in our lives where we envy someone that's done evil, that's gotten ahead by doing wrong, the root of that problem is really a trust issue. Do we trust what God has promised us, or at any given moment, are we trusting what our eyes see? Are we trusting how we feel at a given moment that contradicts what God has said in his promises to us? Do you trust him? Isaiah says, 
From from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, listen, who acts for those who wait for him. Do you trust him? Jeremiah says, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for evil, for a future and a hope. Do you trust him? Paul says, I consider, and we've already heard a theme in a text like this this morning in our worship, I I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Do you trust him? He said that to you, believer. Well, we look to him by delighting in him. This is verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What in the world does this mean? Before we're converted, before we're born again, we don't think much of God, do we? He's not beautiful to us. He's not precious to us. We don't find him satisfying. But when we experience new birth and we're born again, we're saved, God opens our eyes to see his beauty and his glory, that he's the most beautiful, satisfying being in the entire universe, and we're overwhelmed by his kindness, his goodness, his glory, his majesty, his might, his mercy. Psalm 34, we see, we taste and see that the Lord is good. And a lot of folks get hung up on the second half of this verse, God giving us the desires of our hearts. But here's the thing, church. Hear me this morning, when you truly delight yourself in him, the one thing we want above all else is God, and that's precisely what he gives us. He gives us himself. He's our delight, and he gives us himself. Friends, if he gave us the entire world and not himself, we would have nothing. That's not the case. He's revealed himself to us, and we see him as the most beautiful, satisfying thing that we could ever imagine. Listen, if if envy of the wicked, if the problem that we see here in the text is affecting you this morning, tempting you this morning, it's not that you want too much. It's that our eyes have wandered away from God and we're trying to find true joy in some cheap substitute when he's given us himself. Oh, friend, that you would see and savor Christ this morning. We're jealous of the wicked because our delight is not in the Lord. We have a delight problem. Well, we look to the Lord, verse 5, by committing our ways to him. It says this in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord and trust him and he will act. The word commit in, in Hebrew here is literally to roll. To roll. In other words, to, to roll the burden of your life upon the Lord. To let him carry your burdens, to let him have your anxiety, to let him have your worry. Those things that are weighing you down, that are crushing you this morning. And I'm not, I'm not trying to trivialize those, those things that are heavy on you today. Those things, though, he says, roll them on him. Commit your way to the Lord. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 7, we look to the Lord by stilling ourselves before him. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. This is the closing thought of that first section where David's still instructing us, and himself, by the way, to look to the Lord. And as he's wrapping up this idea of, of looking to the Lord, he's given us some instructions, and, and this is the final one. He's saying, be still before the Lord. And I think if you were honest with me this morning, we could all admit that this is really hard to do. This is, this is really hard to do. 
for many reasons. The least of which is it was because we desire autonomy. We desire to fix things ourselves. We want to take care of it. We want to do it ourselves. It's built into us to want to do this. And here we're being told, be still. It's also hard because we try to start here, right? Like we hear this command from scripture, we understand it, and we try to still ourselves before him. And here's the thing, we can't understand oftentimes why it's so hard for our hearts to be still and to find peace. But here's the thing, we can't start here. We only get here to a place of peace, to a place of stillness, a place of, 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 of solitude before the Lord if we follow this path that David's been laying out before us in these verses. Like you see the, the progression, right? He's laying out a, a path before us first that we would trust the Lord. The second, that we would delight ourselves in him, that he above all other things would be our delight, our joy, that we would commit our plans to him. That we would roll those cares, those burdens, those concerns on him. Let him carry those things for us. And then, and only then, are we able to be still and to wait patiently. To say, Lord, I don't have to move because I know you will. This storm is, is crushing me. It's, it's overwhelming me. And I know this is not the end because, God, you're in control. I can wait on you. I can be still before you. God's in control and we can trust him. So we look to him. This ends that first section. We have four more. I promise they're shorter, though. Number two, second major theme that we see here that gives us fuel to fight against temptation of envying the wicked is that we remember the fate of the wicked. The second strategy here that we're given in the psalm helps us battle this envy as we remember the fate of the wicked. We see this in verses 10 through 22 as we recognize a a series of contrasts for us between the faithful and the faithless. Verses 10 through 12 set the tone for us. Look at verse 10 with me. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This may sound familiar to you, and if so, it's because Jesus said it. Jesus quotes this, verse 11, as one of the Beatitudes. And what we see there in Jesus' sermon, as well as here in the psalm, is that to be meek does not mean that you're weak. And in fact, it's the opposite. It takes wisdom, God-given wisdom, uh, God-given strength, God-given patience to wait upon the Lord to act. That we would be still before him and trust that he's going to act on our behalf. But when he does, he'll remove every trace of the wicked from the earth. And when that happens, the meek shall inherit the land. The text also shows us here in this, in this section the actions of the wicked, right? Like on the one hand, the meek, the believers, the ones that are following God, are here waiting upon the Lord. Well, what's happening with the wicked while they are waiting upon the Lord? Look at the text with me. Verse 12, they're plotting against the righteous. You know that's going to happen for you and in, in, in your life, Right? Christ assures you of that. You'll be attacked for naming the name of Christ. You'll suffer for naming the name of Christ. They're plotting against the righteous. Look at verse 13. They make plans to destroy God's people. It's going to happen. And in response, verse 13, God laughs because he knows where this whole thing's going to end. He knows the end from the beginning. Verse 14, they draw their weapons to attack I have no doubt that some of you in this room may have been attacked this week, or you may be attacked next week for naming the name of Christ. We should not be surprised by this. Verse 15, though, but God uses their own weapons against them. 
You could keep going all the way down to verse 20, but the point is clear. When we envy the wicked, think about this, when we envy the wicked, it's because we're not rightly remembering the fate that awaits them. We've let our eyes deceive us and we want what they have for a moment, not remembering what awaits them in the end. If we did, we wouldn't envy them. They seem successful, but where is success when your life ends in destruction? That's number two, that we would remember the fate of the wicked. Look at number three, believe the promises of God. This is the opposite side of the same coin, right? If on the one hand, we are to remember the fate of the wicked, then we must also, on the other side of that coin, remember and believe the promises that we have in God, what he's assured us of, what he's promised us. David summarizes this idea in the first verse of this section, verse 23. It says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Now, how does that happen? David uses personal experience as an example here. As a mature, older man, he's experienced God's hand and the fulfillment of God's promises in his life. I'm sure this morning, if we were to poll some of you that are older, you could testify this morning from your own experiences that this is true, that God's been faithful to his word, and that time and time again, he's proven himself to be trustworthy. But look at verse 25. David shares the same testimony with us. He says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've, I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. I think this one hits us deep as parents. If we're honest, David hits us right square in the chest with this promise because it speaks to an area where we as parents are especially vulnerable, right? Many of us would and do trust God through all sorts of pain and tragedy and heartache and hardship. But then we worry when it comes to our children. Though we would never say it out loud, we wonder... How is God going to take care of them if this happens? What will happen to my children if I follow God in this way? If we make this move, if I take this job, if I do this, how in the world will my children be cared for? Can I be open-handed when it comes to my kids? Let the weight of verse 26 fall on you, believer. That he is ever lending generously. Listen, and his children become a blessing. His children become a blessing. Will you trust the promises of God when it concerns those that are most precious to you on this earth, namely those sons and daughters that you have, maybe those grandchildren that that you have? Will you trust God even there? And here's the thing, I think David goes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because here, if we can have trust in God's promises, if we can be open-handed with our lives here as it concerns our children, then we can trust God with anything. And that's the point. Believe the promises of God and fight for joy. Believe the promises of God as you run from envy. Believe the promises of God as you turn away from the wicked. So believe the promises of God. Number four, trust God to defend you. Trust God to defend you. This next section leads up uh, to this next uh, inherit the land statement. The statement seems to revolve around this idea of God's protection, that God's not passive, that he's not just sitting around, but that he's actually fighting for you. So get, so get this image in your head, believer, that the righteous person, the, the one who's wise and just, he walks in God's ways, he's trusting in the Lord, he's delighting in Christ. The wicked will come against him. The, the testimony of Scripture is that that's true. You will be attacked. You will be 
uh, scorned. You will, be, you will suffer for the, name say, for the name of Christ. But when the wicked comes against him, this is what this part of the psalm is showing us, it's not just against the righteous person. The wicked person is actually coming up against God himself because God is with the righteous person. Do you hear the comfort in that believer? Verses 30 and 31, when the righteous person speaks, they speak God's word because God's word is in his heart. And in return, God speaks up for him and will not allow him to be condemned. Do you hear the comfort in that believer? That God fights for you on the authority of the word of God if you're walking in Christ, if you're looking to the Lord, if your delight is in him, then you can count God on your side, that he's lifting you up. Verse 34, that he will exalt you to inherit the land, and you'll look on the wicked as they're cut off. That's your future. That's your hope in Christ, that he's fighting for you, and you'll be still standing when the wicked are cut off. We can trust God to defend us. Oh, that's good news, believer. It leads to our fifth and final observation here in the text. Behold Christ. Our final section contains this final strategy, this final piece of ammunition, which is the greatest one. It shows us that, that, that one of our problems when we envy the evildoer, the wrongdoer, is that we have a vision problem. Our eyes are not seeing correctly. They're not adjusted and looking at the right thing. We only see what we want to see. And so in this final section, we're shown what we really need to see. David starts by giving us, again, an example from his own experience. Verse 35 and 36. Read with me. David says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and behold, was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. In other words, when God handles business and when God takes care of the wicked, as he says he'll do, he does it in such a way that you couldn't even find the wicked anymore if you were to go looking for them. God handles business, and that should, that should do two things. One, it should grieve our hearts and should, should provide, secondly, some, some, uh, some motivation and urgency to go and share Jesus with the wicked because that's the fate that awaits them. But then he goes deeper, and, and I think this psalm has more for us here as it wraps up. If that's what happens to the wicked, what about the righteous? Look at verse 37. It says, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. If you have your eyes fixed on Christ, there's a future for you. There's a hope for you, and this is what we've been getting at. This is that looking unto the Lord, looking to Christ, the future, the eternal hope that awaits us. It's certainly here in this text, and it's speaking to the joy that we have awaiting us in glory, but I think there's more to this verse in the conclusion of this psalm than simply seeing a future and a hope that wait, awaits the Christ follower. Look at this psalm with me carefully in verse 30, 37. Listen, the true blameless man that we should mark, the psalm says, is of course Jesus Christ himself, the blameless one, the one who never sinned and who was truly blameless. They could bring no blame against him because he was sinless. And yet this one, the Christ, suffered at the hands of sinners. The, crea the creator killed by his creation, murdered upon a cross. This is pointing us to the gospel. Psalm 37 this morning, church, is meant to push you to see Christ, to see the gospel. That the king of all the universe, the perfect spotless lamb of God, 
the upright one, the one who was blameless, was killed. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become sons and daughters. But then look at, look at Psalm, verse 30, 37, Psalm, Psalm 37, verse 37. But behold, he is also the one who is upright. Not only upright in his righteousness and his standing before God being sinless, but he's upright in that he's literally upright right now, walking around because he was raised from the dead. He was not buried and stay in a tomb like every other person. He was raised. He was raised to walk. He was raised unto life because he is the God-man, the one who purchased our souls by, by dying upon the cross, taking our wrath, drinking the cup of wrath on our behalf. Jesus is the ultimate man of peace because he became sin for you. He drank the entire cup of God's wrath on your behalf. And now he reigns in glory in a kingdom that will never end. Seated at the right hand of the Father, praise be to our great God. As you wrap up this psalm and as you see Psalm 37, see the blameless one. And see that he's made you blameless in him. That you have a righteousness that's not your own. That you've been given the righteousness of Christ if you've trusted in his sacrificial death. That he's died in your place and that he's conquered the grave. That he's removed the sting of sin and death. This is what the blameless one has done for you. So friends, as, as I'm closing, ultimately, when we're tempted, and we all are, to envy the wicked, to envy the wrongdoer, look to Jesus. That's what's needed. That's what's needed in that moment. You need the gospel. You need to be reminded that he's, he's done this on your behalf, and that's what awaits you in glory is him. Your delight now will be your reward in that day when your faith is made sight. And the things that you're believing now and trusting now, you see face to face as you look into the eyes of King Jesus, the one who died in your place. If you would, bow your heads with me. I want to just ask a few questions of you as you respond to the text this morning. Is your life, believer, is your life hidden with him? Is he your delight this morning? Or do you find yourself distracted by other things, lesser things, things that will perish, things that when you look around, they will be no more one day? Is your delight in him? Let me ask you a different question. Maybe you're in this room this morning and you've never trusted Christ. You've never come to him in repentance and in faith. Today can be that day. I want to invite you this morning if you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good you've never seen Christ's finished work on the cross as done on your behalf this morning that you would behold Christ the Bible talks about repentance it means literally going one way away from God away from life toward death choosing sin and repentance would be that you would turn and trust Christ. Ask of his forgiveness. You could become a son or daughter today. I want to pray for us. And you respond as the Lord is leading you this morning, as the Holy Spirit is convicting, drawing, wooing you to himself. Let me pray for us. Father God, we need you in this moment to help us see 
the blameless one, the upright one, the one who purchased our souls, atoned for us on the cross of Calvary. Whether we've been a believer for 40 years or in this moment you were drawing someone to salvation, the request is the same this morning, Father, that we would see Christ. And that in light of Christ, we would see our sin and our dependence, our need for you, and that we would confess this morning those realities and those truths. And God, I pray that Psalm 37 would be an encouragement for us as we walk this week, that though our eyes may be tempted to, to sin and to see wrong and evil and run toward it, that we would, we would avoid that temptation by the power of your Spirit and these tools that you've given us this morning in your Word to fight for joy and holiness. So King Jesus, you be exalted. In this time of response, we pray in the name of, the name of Jesus, our soon coming King. Amen.